Theo Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is founder and CEO of Adapt to Life Foundation, my friend and adaptive athlete, Fritz Rudy. Fritz has openly shared overcoming adversities throughout his amputation journey, including the roller coasters of emotions and self-doubts often associated with limb loss. Doing this episode is double special for me as Fritz and I have become really good friends over the years since having met him randomly at the amputee conference in the U.S. Actually, Fritz is one of the first amputees I met outside of the hospital since my amputation four years ago. So welcome to the show, Fritz, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, um, let's get right into it. So perhaps uh, share with us your limb loss experience. Um. In 2012, August of 2012, I was uh, T-boned on my motorcycle. Uh, such a common, you know, common story. Uh, T-boned on my motorcycle. Um, I had a multiple compound uh, tib-fib fracture in my right leg and a degloving of my right foot. So for approximately one full year, they tried to salvage my limb, uh, multiple operations, uh, rods, and almost experimental procedures on my foot to try to uh, regrow the heel. Um, but after a full year, they saved the leg. They did save it. I just couldn't walk on it. Uh, at that point in time, I decided that it would be um, a lot better for a quality of life to go through an amputation. Uh, I spoke with a few people in the prosthetics field and I asked them morals aside, strictly mechanically speaking, would I be better off with an amputation for mobility? And they, they concurred with that. So uh, that's when I decided to go through the amputation, which would have been July of 2013. So almost a full year, like a week shy of a full year from the date of the accident. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up as an amputee. So you had a pre sort of pre emptied surgery and, and you, you were able to go through the, the emotions of acceptance of, of, of doing that. And, and I guess, educating yourself before your surgery, w was there anything at all that was going through your mind about getting ready for your surgery or honestly, uh, from the beginning, um, I, I did not go into shock when I was T-bone when I got into the accident. I remember every millisecond of, you know, right before the accident, all the way through, landing on the concrete, looking down, realizing what's going on. And honestly, the moment I looked down at my leg, I knew I was going to lose it. I just knew. And I almost instantly, I don't want to say came to peace with it, but I almost instantly understood it. Um, I, I don't know why, but I just knew it was going to happen. Uh, the roller coaster afterwards, and, and there's been many studies done on the, uh, the difference between salvage and amputation in a traumatic accident, a traumatic crushing injury, uh, the, the quality of life, um, if they amputate immediately versus the quality of life, if they salvage, I'm, I'm not one to throw statistics out there but on average if if it's a severely damaged limb what you're going to be left with is going to be less mobile and this is the this is exactly the reason why so i got hit i figured i was going to wake up without a leg once they put me under once i got to the hospital and, and they finally got me calmed down enough and got me under i figured i was going to wake up without a leg when i woke up with my leg I was given hope um, by everybody. And that hope is never a bad thing. It never is. Uh, but for a year, it wasn't like I went through one surgery and then I got better. And then 12 months later, it went bad. It was a year of going in and out of surgery. I can't remember how many surgeries, 11, 12 surgeries that year, uh, major surgeries trying to repair this leg and salvage this leg. Uh, so it was a year of going from surgery to recovery and then back into surgery. So there really was no time to rehab or start getting used to a specific type of lifestyle. But I kept getting this hope of this is going to work this time. This is going to fix it this time. This time, this will work. Uh, after the full year of 
failed attempt after failed attempt after failed attempt. And knowing that my mobility would be affected, it was almost like a resignation of, you know, okay, the amputation is going to have its own problem. And honestly, I didn't think of the other issues that come along with amputation. Um, you know, constant nerve pain and, and, and phantom limb sensations and things of that nature. I honestly just thought of being able to walk with my kids uh, and, and do things that I've been able to do most of my life. So it was when I got to that point where the, the last uh, surgery, the last salvage attempt failed, it was a, it was a, more of a falling back into a resignation. Like I resigned myself to, okay, this is, this is the path. There is no other path. Um, and I, I guess I could have kept the leg and just dealt with a club foot for the rest of my life and un, been, un, been unable to ever run or climb ladders or do my job or any of these other things. Uh, so the preparation was in my instance, was a full year of seeing a failed attempt after a failed attempt, you know, of trying to salvage my leg and watching my family deal with, you know, me literally going from bed to chair for a year. I was either in a hospital bed or I was in bed or a reclining chair with my leg up and tubes and you know, pick lines and everything else, fighting infections uh, for for a full year. And it was just, it was time. It was time. They'd seen enough pain and uh, suffering. So, like I say, I, I kind of fell into a resignation of this is the path. My My mother actually put it to me a very, very good way because I was very frustrated. I'm like, I lost a year. I lost an entire year of my life to this surgery and to this pain and to this, you know, getting my hopes up and getting it crushed over and over again. And my mother, when I was talking to her on the phone, almost immediately after leaving the hospital, um, when I decided to schedule the amputation, uh, she said something very wise to me. She said, well, now when you go forward with an amputated leg, you can, without a doubt, tell yourself that you tried literally everything. You tried everything. So you will never have to question this amputation. You will never look back and, and uh, uh, feel remorse that you made that decision. You know, the decision made itself. So that was the thought process and the path uh, leading up to the actual amputation. I can't imagine, you know, having raising a family with young kids um, and a home and a job and everything else that sort of, you know, you formed your life already. And in that year, there's got to be some moments where you're like, I know eventually you said, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm, I've given it my all. But there has to be some moments in time where you sit, you know, between those surgeries where you're like, why am I doing this for? Like, how long is this going to go on for? What, how did you identify those moments or, or were you preoccupied by just healing at uh, that point? Those moments. Um, and I think this is a, a pretty common denominator among many people who end up going through an amputation, whether it's, you know, whether it's from peripheral artery disease or cancer or infection or any of the multiple reasons. Uh, it would come on me in waves. There would be moments of, well, not even moments. There would be long periods of, okay, this is the fight. We're going to keep going. And then it would kind of hit you like a, like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, why, why am I, why am I so fighting? Why am I, why is this happening to me? The why, the big why question. And, and that's part of the mourning process. That's part of the, the the pain process and the dealing with such a traumatic event in your life. I mean, having your life go from working 80 hours a week on your feet, providing everything, being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, uh, to just flip immediately, you know, onto your back and saying, well, 
this is this is it. This is the rest of your life. You're going to be stuck in a chair for the rest of your life. So it came on me in waves. Um, the the despair. I use that that term very uh, very intrinsically. It's, it's it is it's it's true and honest despair where you just where you're sitting there and life is moving on around you and you're sitting there trying to heal and you do you you feel this deep despair of i can't go why am i still fighting this way why is this happening to me um so yeah it came on in waves here and there but then yeah whether it was you know my kids coming home from school or daycare and crawling all over me or you know, one of my friends making some snide remark or my dad calling me hop along or something along those lines, something would pull me back out, you know, of, of the uh, darkness. And uh, I would refocus on, okay, let's keep fighting. Uh, so that's pretty much how those instances would occur. Now that you've gone through that year of like, I can't believe I'm going through this and all the struggles that you've had uh, dealing with your with your uh, surgeries throughout the, the whole year. When you finally see the leg gone, what went through your mind and how did the recovery process start for you from that point on? I, re- I remember it very, very clearly. Um, I'm a very lucky individual that I, I come out of anesthesia very clearly, um, clear-headed. Um, some people have problems with anesthesia, but... I, the, the prep the day before, you know, I was getting myself in the mindset, my, <laughs> my children painted my toenails on both my feet, uh, to give the doctor something pretty to look at was, uh, what my children were thinking of. So all of my toenails were a different color and I remember, and I have pictures of it and it pops up on my, in my memories from time to time on, on different social media, uh, platforms. But I took a picture and not just an actual picture, but, I, you know, also a, a mental picture of looking down at both of my feet uh, before they started the, the IV drip for my anesthesia, before I started getting fuzzy. I remember looking at those goofy toes, those goofy colored toes, you know, and I looked at my right foot, which was just mangled and discolored and scarred and my right leg, which was just massively scarred. But then at the end of that massively scarred leg was these pretty little toes sticking out, you know. Um, and I do recall very clearly coming out of anesthesia, and it took about five seconds. It took about five seconds to reflect and to mentally prepare. And when I looked down, it was almost like you said, for me, it, it was also it was a feeling of relief. It was, okay, that's gone. It's that those problems are no more and uh the new path has begun so it was it was a feeling of of relief not necessarily elation or happiness but you know the the feeling of relief of okay that issue that i've been fighting for a year is gone so almost like a weight was lifted so now let's deal with the next the next set of problems i guess is it going back to the same lifestyle that you have to start? I know, I know you're a fit guy and, and, and you're a wilderness man. So was that the focus of your, or your motivation uh, to get back into wearing prosthesis and, and, um, and moving forward with this new chapter in your life? The motivation, um, and it, it might almost seem like a, like a corny poster you might see on, you know, a, a counselor's wall, but just, if you ever need to get motivation to move, just look at who's paying attention to you. And I think of my kids, you know, um, they're watching. They're, they're, they've been watching, you know, they've been my biggest supporters, you know, my wife, my kids, they're watching from the sidelines. And uh, I needed to Show them that no matter what life throws at you, you just have to keep going regardless. You know, you get knocked down, you get back up and you find a way to overcome these things. Getting back to my lifestyle um, of, you know, hunting, fishing, um, hiking, just spending time in the outdoors, you know, with my family or by myself, you know, hunting as a solo sport. 
being able to just do the simple things around the house. It was uh, one of the things that was almost an embarrassment to me was having to call other people to come over when I was laid up for a, for a full year or even after my amputation when I've had issues arise, when I've had to call people to work on a plumbing issue in the house or fix something on my vehicle is something that I've always done myself. And when I wasn't able to do that, it was, it was, I was almost like letting myself down. Obviously, you know, the logical part of my mind would say, that's not, obviously you have problems. That's not, you know, it's not that you can't do it ever. It's just that you can't do it right now. But you know, the deeper part of me was, was almost ashamed to have to call on other people to do these things that I've always just, been able to do um you know anything from wiring the house to completely redoing plumbing or like i say fixing vehicles you know uh it's always been my thing so the retaking of the things that i had lost you know my children were definitely the biggest push for that uh because they they need every child needs somebody to look up to to, to a good example um but also like i said uh, just it was important for me to be able to at minimum get back what i had lost the ability to walk in the woods uh to go walking in streams and rivers fishing and things of that nature so you brought um your you know your children and your family surrounding you, cheerleading you on. And I know you're one of the biggest cheerleaders of many amputees, including myself. Um, There's a picture of you and I with you, you know, almost Hulk-like yelling as I was running towards the finish line. Um, I think that was taken two years ago, um, I believe, at uh, one of the running clinics that you and I both have attended. And I think a lot of the misconceptions for us who appeared that way, you know, especially having just said what we had gone through and, and saying being thankful or almost, you know, uh, at the end of the surgery saying, oh, you know, the problem is gone. It appears as though the problems are all gone and we no longer experiences any kind of self-doubt or other mental health issues that, that, that come along with amputation. How do we sort of, I guess, take, you know, take that blanket away a little and say, no, we do. And, and, and it's okay to feel that way. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely. And I, I have always tried at least on in social media is what I like to call the highlight reel. Um, so, you know, if somebody's perusing either, well, any of my social media accounts on any of the platforms, you know, they'll see the highlights of me weightlifting or you know currently at least not at the very beginning but currently you know weightlifting or downhill skiing or doing a spartan race or doing whatever uh and they see that and they're like oh well all the problems are gone and so it is actually it's a it's a very common misconception that uh we just simply get over these things um and once we are able to move on and able to put a leg on and walk, everything's fine. Uh, those mental issues, they're still there. They're always still there. Uh, the questioning of yourself, the, uh, the, the self-doubt, the, the pain, both physical and mental pain, um, they're there. Uh, so in my social media accounts i try to at least occasionally um touch on when i'm having a bad time like when i'm having a complication with my leg if i have an ingrown hair you know and trying to explain because i I have you know people from multiple different types of disabilities and people with disabilities understand you know regardless of, of what their disability is that there's almost always it's almost a universal truth that there are other complications uh, that come with these disabilities. So I try to post information like, well, you know, I, yesterday I was skiing and, and slaying in the gym. And today I'm laid up with an ingrown hair, an ingrown hair, which to most people, you know, in, in the world, an ingrown hair is just that it's just something you deal with for a little bit. But when in our instance, as a amputee, we have an ingrown hair within uh, the socket. 
it can be well completely debilitating. It, it, you can't walk on it. It's like uh, somebody stabbing you with a hot knife right at that point. So you have to be without a leg for a few days while you get it, you know, cleaned up and disinfected and and uh, taken care of. So I try, as far as pulling the blanket back is concerned, you know, pulling the shade off of what people might think is is okay for us. I I try to educate as much as I can, you know, just through my social media. I have I don't have a lot of followers, but I have a few, um, both on the disabled side and on, you know, able bodied. Uh and I know I've had some people reach out to me and say, Wow, I didn't know, you know, <laughs> I didn't know it was like that. You know, it's it's it is. It's an educational experience. It's an educational experience for myself, you know, as and I'm sure you went through the same thing. As we go through this journey, um, we find new and interesting ways to to feel pain. <laughs> um, those, it's almost, it's life. Honestly, whether you're disabled or not, there's there's always factors that other people don't see or don't realize or don't recognize. Uh, whether that's because you're putting on a brave face or whether because they just don't know and uh i think education and conversation is one of the best ways to open people's minds you know i've I've dealt with that um in the workplace several times trying to explain to human resources and the safety people and whomever else you know if i had to miss work because hey i've got ingrown hair and they're looking at me like what (laughs) i'm like i can't wear my leg well that doesn't make sense and they, they they just don't understand it. So it's through calm and clear and decisive explanations of what actually occurs. I think that we can educate uh, people who may have misconceptions of, about uh, what it is to be in the life of somebody with a disability. You said something interesting there, and I want to go back to it but about admitting to yourself. I think just going back a little bit further in that, you know, we put on a brave face. And for those who always puts on a brave face, it's almost like it's not okay for me to feel bad. How do how do you for yourself kind of accept that it? No, it is okay today to feel this way. And I and how do you rise about that? Or I, I hate saying the word how to rise above it, but you, you know, like how do you overcome those moments where, I, you know, it, it's a, it's a give up day kind of day today. That took training, um, and just I think a little bit, you know, with anything in life, it, it took a lot of training. Uh, having a day where literally you could be. The day before, you could, like I said, you could be out skiing and slaying in the gym or doing some other crazy sport. And then the next day, ingrown hair or an angry nerve or you threw a blister. Um, it took time. Uh, it definitely took time for me to be able to not only look at myself and say, it's okay not to be okay, but to be able to tell other people, hey, I can't do these things today. I have. Uh, I have a blister or I have, I have an issue, you know, sometimes you don't want to get too in depth, but saying I have an issue and and I'm unable to do things. Uh, Admitting, admitting to other people, your own weakness is, I think harder than admitting to yourself. Um, For some people, it's different. Uh, Some people have a harder time admitting to themselves. Um, Personally, you know, admitting to myself that, okay, today is not a good day. Today I have to take care of my limb or I have to take care of my equipment or whatever the case. But being able to tell other people that, to show other people that weakness. And weakness isn't a bad thing. I don't use that term as, as a bad thing. It's it's a moment of weakness. It's just that. Um, weakness can be overcome. It's, it's not cowardice. It's not any of these things. It's simply a moment where you can't overcome that issue, whatever that issue might be. So, uh, like I say, just trying to come to grips with it myself, that took time. Um, 
And it took even more time to be able to tell people that, no, I, I can't do this uh, race. I can't do this event. I can't come out and play. I can't come out to dinner. And, you know, that was a, that was a hard pill to swallow, being able to tell these people openly that I am hurting. I am in pain. And sometimes it's not always physical pain. Sometimes it's the mental pain. Sometimes, you know, um, having really bad social anxiety. Sometimes I'm having just anxiety overall uh, or any of the other mental health issues that can come along with a traumatic injury and amputation or disability of any kind. Uh, being able to admit those things uh, takes time and, and a lot of self uh, diagnosis, a lot of self thought, like really introspecting on yourself. So. Right. And um, as a, as a man to man, I think one of the challenges we have is uh, is removing that stigma of uh, again toxic max masculinity where you can show that emotion or you can show that you're defeated or you can show weakness because you're a man. How do we remove that stigma or how did you you know for yourself reflected on yourself and said, "You know what? I'm not going to be that guy anymore because I need to admit this for myself because it will help me internally and it'll help those around me as well and understand what I go through." Um, I overcame yeah, I'll, I'll still deal with it from time to time, of course, but the, the toxic masculinity and the being able to get over the, Hey, man up routine, you know, uh, such a common thing it, through just realizing that I do have an actual disability and disability is not a dirty word. You know, some people use it as, Oh, I'm disabled, blah, blah, blah. Realizing you're disabled is fine. You know, we all have to come to grips with that. Um, but being able to overcome that. When, once you mentally, uh, break through the barrier of saying I'm disabled. It doesn't mean that I'm not able to do things. Uh, that's part of the battle. Um, but dealing with the, the masculine, you know, I have to be tough. I have to not show any emotion. Uh, I have to not cry. I have to not show pain. You know, I have to be a big manly man. Um, honestly, that's self-awareness. It's it's being comfortable in your skin and understanding that being a man is is not about <laughs> growing a beard and, and thumping one's chest and, you know, climbing the Empire State Building or any of these things. It's it's about, you know, it's about rising above and and rising above is not just, you know being able to overcome physical obstacles and lift heavy things. It's about being able to look adversity dead square in the face and just say, bring it and accept it. Um, and to look physical and or mental pain, because a lot of times they coincide, uh, you know, look at it and understand that this is just a part of life and, being able to realize that that alone is an act of strength is an act of masculinity, if you will, you know, uh, being able to tell your family or your loved ones or whomever your close circle is that I can't come to whatever event. Uh, I'm not, I'm not in the right headspace. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with some depression. I'm dealing with some anxiety right now and it wouldn't be a good time for me to be in that scenario. That's strength. That's power. You know, that's really overcoming. Um, if somebody looks at that as a sign of weakness, if somebody looks at, for example, me coming forward and saying, Hey, I can't come to this event. Uh, because I'm dealing with some anxiety and it wouldn't be good. If they look at that as weakness, well, the weakness is on them, not on me. 
you know, and uh, it's a hard step for many, many men to take because of this well, toxic masculinity, as it's you know put this uh, thought process of you know caveman chest beating, you know, have to be the big strong person. It's that's so backwards. It's completely backwards. Um, being able to look at my own emotions and being able to deal with them, whether dealing with them is choking them down for the moment or whether dealing with them is bringing them to the top and discussing with the people around me what is actually happening. That's pure strength right there, in my opinion. Right. I think there's a lot of, um, again, it's just a lot of times it's, you know, the expectations that, that, that society puts on, on us really. And then that go makes us into hiding, which I think is dangerous for any of our health, not just mental health, but physical health, right? You can't do something, but you'll do it anyway, just because, Oh, I gotta be the man of that. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that's important to, to hear that. And now you talk, you were talking about mental and physical challenges, and you, as the CEO and, and founder of Adapt to Life Foundation, and we always talk about adapting in this community, what are those mindset things as an athlete as well that makes you go, okay, I'm going to be able to do this today and and I'm going to to physically work out today. And how do you overcome that, that part in your brain that says, eh, I don't really want to work out today, but I got to work out today. Like, how do you... How do you manage and balance those two things, those two things together? Sometimes it's, it's just about um, looking at the day. You know, if you wake up and you're just not quite feeling it, you, you have to keep an eye on long distance goals. You know, whether those long distance goals are being able to run a marathon or whether those long distance goals are losing weight or overall strength or being able to do a particular uh, exercise a certain way, box jumps for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, uh, very much opposed to gravity. Uh, it's focus on one small aspect, not a big, huge picture. Because like when you wake up and if you're not feeling it, mentally at least, you know, you're not feeling it, it might be because you're trying to look at this big, huge scope of, I want to be able to do all of these things. Um, focus on the small things first. Focus on one step at a time. You know, put your leg on. That's <laughs> step one. You know, um, focus on, all right, I'm going to get to the gym and I'm at least going to walk on a treadmill. You know, at least get warmed up, get some exercise. Uh, and even if it's not a gym, even if it's uh, just getting to the park or, you know, getting yourself ready for the day, whatever it is, you have to focus on on one individual step at a time when the grand scope of things seems to be an overwhelming task and it seems to hold you down, which is a common occurrence. You know, you have all these dreams and aspirations and they tend to hold you down. So just pick one piece out of, of your overall, you know, uh, scope of what you want to become or what you're trying to accomplish, pick one thing and focus on that for the day to say, okay, well, I'm not going to become a complete power lifter today in multiple different sports, but maybe I can go in and work on shoulders or, you know, maybe I can go in and work on seated deadlift, or maybe I can just go in and, and talk to somebody about my diet. I, you know, I have to work out. I can go talk to a trainer about that. So. And what's your typical workout day? <laughs> uh, my typical workout day is warming up on a uh, tread climber. It's like a stair climber. And I hate that thing. It is uh, an actual medieval torture device that they revamped and put a TV on. Um, I generally try to put on a weighted vest with 20 to 40 pounds and climb stairs for 15 to 30 minutes. Sometimes that'll be my entire workout will be just doing the stairs um i will then go from i'm working with a trainer right now uh trying to work on multiple aspects so 
I have a trainer to yell at me. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of lighter weight, higher repetition type things, just trying to break down uh, some of the flexibility issues that I've, you know, uh, that have overcome the uh, lack of flexibility due to immobilization for years and, you know, COVID. Um, you know, we were all a little bit more active before COVID and then COVID happened and then gym shut down. And so a lot of us ended up spending a little bit more time in the chair than we really should have. I'm fully able to admit the fact that I sat down a lot more than I should have. So losing some, some flexibility and getting, you know, tendons and ligaments are a little tighter than normal so right now my workout program is uh lighter weight uh higher reps and uh just trying to regain some of that uh flexibility and mobility i mean that's really important for prosthetic wearers to get the, the flexibility and balance uh i i'm constantly working on my balance as a bilateral amputee like any opportunity I can walk uh, a different elevation even, you know, um, to just get working on core and, and balancing and all that. I think it's important, even to your point, not having a gym, just maybe taking a walk around the neighborhood to just get that 20 minute in there to at least be mobile for 20 minutes um, has been helpful mentally for me anyway as well. So yeah. I brought up earlier that, that you are the founder and CEO of uh, Adapt to Life Foundation. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, the Adapt to Life Foundation, my goal is to, um, well, the goal of the Adaptive Life Foundation is to bring adaptive training and adaptive opportunities to people with disabilities uh, in the Midwest or in Wisconsin. Um, it started out with the fact that whenever I went to an adaptive event, it was out of state. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, adaptive running clinics and adaptive ski events and adaptive anything uh that are out of state um and i looked at that i'm like well this is ridiculous why do i have to travel out of state why is there nothing in wisconsin there's a few things in wisconsin and and they do a very good job um but they're localized around major metros in the southern part of the state wisconsin uh northern part of the state is pretty pretty dry as far as adaptive um adaptive events and adaptive training of any kind. Uh, and I really looked at it and the scope of my goals for the Adaptive Life Foundation really started growing from there. You know, it wasn't just a, okay, well, let's get some adaptive events here, but adaptive training, you know, anything from, Hey, I just ended up in a wheelchair. How do I get on and off the toilet without breaking my face? Something simple like that. All the way up to, hey, I want to run or roll or bike or whatever, a marathon or a triathlon, or I want to downhill ski again or sit ski or, you know, whatever the disability might call for. Um, I want to be able to, to afford opportunities to people within the disabled community that they didn't even know were possible. Some people who become disabled, uh, they might think that their life is over, and it's not. Uh, but they might not know that there are other opportunities out there um, simply because they're remote or they're in a very rural area. So when I started looking at these things, um, it started growing and affording um, peer visits for other amputees. Now, I'm not focusing strictly on amputees with the foundation, but, you know, my, obviously I'm an amputee. So as far as like peer visiting is concerned for somebody, for those who don't know, somebody who becomes disabled and sometimes they're still in the hospital or sometimes they're just out of the hospital, they might have questions about everything that has to do with becoming an amputee. Um, sometimes having somebody with the same affliction the same disability, another amputee come in and talk to you, I could be saying exactly the same words in exactly the same way as a therapist or a physical therapist. But because that physical therapist and they're doing a great job, but because they're able-bodied, sometimes it doesn't quite resonate with that individual. Having somebody with the same affliction walk in and talk to them 
you know, and be able to relate to them on a level that an able-bodied person might not be able to uh, really does change uh, one's perspective and outlook and can really be a beacon of light and, and hope for somebody who just entered a world that is very, very difficult. Uh, so I started looking at, in my area at least, I started looking at uh, what support groups are out there. And there really aren't. There are some that that show up and they stay active for a short time and then they stop. Um, so one of the uh, things that the Adapt to Life Foundation is going to work on is setting up support systems and support groups in different areas in Wisconsin, positively led support groups. So a support group that, you know, we can get together as amputees um, and discuss, yeah, there are things that are terribly hard and there are things that, well, just flat out suck, um, <laughs> things that are not good. But then to also not just focus on those things, and I think a lot of, I wouldn't even want to say a lot of, but some support groups end up dying because of, you know, there is no way to turn it. It's just, it's just focused on the negative. So being able to have a positively led support group where, yes, we can talk, we have to be able to talk about, you know, yeah, this does suck. It does. You know, it's not always easy for us. Um, but then to be able to turn it and end it on a positive note will will be more supportive for the amputee community and the disabled community in general. Um, being able to look at, uh, to acknowledge the negatives, but also find the positives. So. I look at some of the major rural areas in Wisconsin, and there is a lot of rural areas. Uh, and it's more of a, a bring the mountain to Muhammad situation. And it's the same thing with training. Um, as far as gate training, walking training, running training, things of that nature. People who are on disability, who you know have a lack of funds because they're on a disability they can't afford to travel for five hours to a major metropolitan area have a hotel for a night and go to one of these training seminars so even if they had the aspiration to do these things they, they don't have the means to do it so i want to be able to take the training to them uh to these rural areas and even if it's simple like i say even simple stuff you know uh hey i just <laughs> <laughs> just lost a leg how do or i just lost both my legs how do i get on and off the bathroom you know the toilet without falling off or you know what are some ideas to overcome this obstacle just even the little things like that you know people look at the adaptive the word adaptive and many people uh, think that is synonymous with high level adaptive athletes you know um adaptive para athletes and pair skiing, pair golf, you know, all these doing Spartan races and things like that. A lot of times they, they think that it's one and the same. And honestly, living adaptively is overcoming any obstacle, even if it's getting from your bed to your chair. It, it's, it's being able to figure out the tips and the tricks on how to get there, how to overcome these issues. So bringing these uh, resources to rural areas to where people don't have to travel so far and expend so much money. Um, that is one of the major, major goals. Uh, initially, the first push is to get people with disabilities uh, sponsored for a six-week uh, training program um, at our local YMCA. I'm currently working on that. Uh, and it's not a training program where you're going to come in and being yelled at and have to run through hoops and, and, <laughs> and jump over walls and lift heavy weights. Honestly, it can be as simple as uh, just learning how to do very small exercises, even without weight, you know, just to get your body moving, just to regain that. Um, these things lead to much more uh, prominent positive mental health uh, impacts um even simple movement just being able to sit up you know can can make 
a huge difference in somebody's overall outlook, you know, and then that will improve the next step and the next step. So um, that's one of the things uh, it's the training is not always going to be crazy downhill skiing or, 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 or running marathons. Um, it's simply giving people the tools that they need to overcome daily tasks uh, and, and affording the opportunities to people who just, they don't have it in their area. Right. No, I mean, I, I, those are, Amazing goals, I think, and and I wish you all the best in that. Um, where can people find more about you and Adapt to Life Foundation? Currently, I am working on. <laughs> I'm I'm starting a foundation, a nonprofit organization uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So it's it's been a slow start. I don't have a website yet. So I'm working on funding for uh, getting a website put it together. But for right now, I, I am available on, on Facebook, at the Adaptolite Foundation. Uh, there's a button at the top for messaging, direct messaging. Um, for anything from just questions, you know, peer questions, which I've received, uh, to uh, questions on how to do certain tasks um, or questions about what uh, the foundation is all about. Um, my phone number is available on there. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm available to talk to anybody. Uh, I try to reach out to as many people. Anybody who messages, I message back. Uh, I, I, tr I'm trying as best I can with no funding. But like, uh, I think anybody, <laughs> obviously, everybody's been going through the same thing that uh, I'm going through. So um, I'm trying to do as much as I can with with the resources that I have uh currently so it'll grow it will there's there's no doubt in my mind right now it's it's starting small starting small in my local community and and getting people uh sponsored at the y i'm like i say i'm currently working with the y right now getting some numbers put together uh so i can get some fundraising done and get some people moving uh improve some lives uh, as far as the peer support and reaching out to people, that's something I can do for free. And so I do uh, as, as often as I can uh, try talking to friends, um, trying to get people better care. Uh, unfortunately, in my area, uh, prosthetic care is not the best for young and active uh, amputees. And so I've, worked with some people trying to get them out of area to the prosthetist that I go to, um, which is four and a half hour drive one way, which is a long drive. Um, but it's anybody with any kind of disability can say that adaptive equipment, regardless of what it is, whether it's a prosthetic leg, whether it's a wheelchair, whether it's a walker, having the right equipment can really improve one's life. So I try to get people in touch with the people who can properly get them the equipment that they need. Uh, I've personally driven two people <laughs> four and a half hours just to meet my prosthetist. Um, sometimes they go there, sometimes they don't. Uh, but I, I just want to, I want everybody to have the same opportunities uh, and, and find the same level of support and care that I have. I've already gone through. I've already gone through the basic, the, the beginning steps, and I think many of us go through the same pitfalls at the very beginning. You know, at least in the amputee life, of you know, not asking the right questions, not knowing the right questions to ask of your prosthetist, not realizing that the prosthetist works for you, the doctors work for you. You need to interview them to find out. You know, do they work with younger people? Do they work with active people? Do they know how to do certain types of suspension systems? Uh, or are they strictly a pin lock off the shelf type person? Um, actually getting a tour of their shop, I think is vastly important. If they're not allowed, if they don't allow you to take a tour of their shop, then I would question that. Uh, being able to see that they're running at the next level technology that, I mean, technology, we can't keep up with the rate of technology advancement. Nobody can. Uh, by the time you get a piece of equipment, whether it's a phone or whether, you know, whether it's a foot or a leg, there's already something more advanced out there. By the time you get it delivered to you, 
there's already something more advanced out there. So making sure that people are in touch with the cutting edge of technology, people who are actually creating these advancements, you know, those are the types of clinics that you want to be in, not a type of clinic that runs you through as a number and says, okay, uh, we're going to put you in a strictly a pin lock and, well, get used to pain. That's been said to me, <laughs> you know, so I've already gone through the pitfalls of, of dealing with uh, improper care or inadequate care. Uh, I don't want to say that they didn't care. Um, it's just that they didn't have the facilities and the abilities that I required to, to lead a very active life. Um, so being able to help people get through those initial, the, the maze of problems that you deal with at the very beginning. You know, if I can, if I can help one person overcome or, or get around even one of those issues, then I've succeeded, you know? Right. So. No, I think, I think advocating for yourself definitely is key in, in, in our journeys. I, you know, I second that absolutely too. If I can bring that knowledge to just have a person ask, what are the questions I should, should I be asking instead of what are the things should I be told or do I accept what I've just told? I think is is really key in in overall recovery, really, you know, and to feeling that you are moving forward um, in your in your healing in your own journey. I want to thank Fritz Rudy for sharing his story with us today. I'll share all the links to uh, Fritz's Adapted to Life Foundation on my website www.airsaltdomino.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at the MPTO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been the MPTO Show Podcast. <laughs>